0: to protect yourself from further violence, and that's the goal of that order of protection.
1: Dang, yes. we've talked about for yes. years that when you see these in a domestic violence incident, are a huge red flag or indicators.
2: It's interesting, Laura, too, because Mike and I have talked about this in church outreach and in some of the
0: training that we're, we're currently doing. But we saw a huge spike. We saw a significant spike in calls to 911. And now, the Safety Zone.
2: Welcome, folks, to another episode of The Safety Zone. I'm here with Mike McCarty, CEO of Safe Hiring Solutions. And Mike, we're going to talk about a subject today that, whether it be during COVID, which we've seen an increase in, and just in general, domestic violence cases, and there's a new piece of legislation on the federal level, that we're going to touch upon. And, and I might add, too, it's also this month is uh, Women's History Month. And I would like to say that those on the front lines of domestic violence prevention are the unsung heroes that we often don't hear about. And of course, the women that face this horrible horrible situation. So we have a special guest today, Laura Barry, and I'm going to let you introduce her because you go way back with Laura. So why don't you fill us in?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And welcome, Laura. We do go way back. Um, We were just calculating, and I hate to admit it, but it's probably some 23 or 24 years. I was transitioning out of the police department in Nashville, Tennessee, had reached out to Laura. She's the executive director of the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence and was at that time. And we partnered up as soon as I moved back to Indiana. And actually, Laura was able to fund a project to start training every police officer in Indiana that went through the Indiana Law Enforcement Training Academy. So we were trying to get young officers before they developed any bad habits and get them some training. And so that's how we collaborated. And I actually give her a lot of credit because her financial backing allowed me to spin out and start my company and it gave me Mm -hmm. a little bit of guaranteed income when I started the company on the day my oldest son was born. So anyway, Mm -hmm. Laura, welcome.
0: Thanks for having me. And you're giving me too much credit. You came along at a great time when we really needed to implement an institutionalized training out at the academy for law enforcement officers. We really hadn't had that opportunity to, to get in there and do a comprehensive training for officers on how to investigate and report on domestic violence here in the state of Indiana. So actually, it was a great partnership, Mike.
1: It actually led to a larger kind of model. You and I got involved with the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center down in Glencoe, Georgia, which is now part of Homeland Security and helped as they were kind of developing a train-the-trainer domestic violence curriculum for rural communities. And we were kind of on the front end of helping design and then deliver some of that training for years. Yeah,
0: that was a wonderful opportunity to get to travel the country and really work with rural officers and helping them understand what was appropriate interventions for in domestic violence cases, everything from safety in courtrooms to on-site response to report writing and It really was kind of a time for, I'd say, cutting edge response to domestic violence way back in the early 2000s. And Laura,
2: in the training of the officers, what have you seen? Have you seen any big change from when you both started so long ago? Sorry, but to where we are today?
0: Oh. Wow, Um, absolutely. There's been such a tremendous shift, I think, both in domestic violence and in law enforcement response. So I think what has been really tremendous is law enforcement in the time that we really started this movement in the early 1993, 1994, really this was brought about by the Violence Against Women Act that kind of opened up this opportunity for us to partner with law enforcement agencies more because funding was made available, right, to be able to provide funding to law enforcement agencies, to victim advocate agencies, to do this type of training and to bring on specialized units within prosecutor's office, within law enforcement agencies. And then this provided a level of professionalism and opportunities for officers to be trained and have a better understanding not only of the dynamics of domestic violence, What survivors were experiencing, but also allowed for officers to get specialized training on on scene investigation, on report writing, to get specialized officers in units that were really focused on response to domestic and sexual violence. Because officers had told us and had reported through studies, it was really one of the number one calls they were going on, but they Mm. weren't. equipped to answer these types of calls. Plus they had no resources to provide to survivors. It was just a constant call that they were going to over and over again. And in that kind of time, laws and statutes changed to help support what officers could do. We moved to what we called warrantless arrest. Officers no longer had to see the crime occur and that they could do probable cause arrests. And so I saw there was a huge shift, not not only in that, but then law enforcement also got an understanding of, of the significant Dynamics and the barriers that um, victims of domestic violence were experiencing and why it was so difficult maybe to leave those situations and how to be supportive and how to do interviews with children and how to do what we call victimless prosecution and be able to really see the totality of of the circumstances within the home. And so, so much has shifted from Mm. 40 years ago to now. Mm.
1: It was just interesting listening to you, Laura, because first of all, it takes me back many years and you look at what officers didn't have in terms of training, the tools they need in their toolbox. And mm-hmm. you think, what other profession <laughs> send somebody out to do a job that they spend the majority of their day doing and they have absolutely no tools in place to really understand the job we've sent them out to do? And it's funny because a lot of people say, oh, the resistance. And yes, there were officers that maybe resisted this training because we don't want to lie and say there hasn't been an issue within our law enforcement agencies of being attractive but to people who also abuse. So we had to clean our own house and start cleaning our house. And when we talk about all this progress, it leads me into a question that Laura, you and I were chatting about a couple of weeks ago. Was we've made this progress, then COVID has hit, and we have these lockdowns and isolation. And just share with us a little bit, just here in Indiana, what those numbers look like, because it kind of what it did is it kind of punched me in the stomach to say, man, twenty years of doing this and we've made such progress. And it seems like in the last 12 months, we've seen some real changes in the progress.
0: Right. So you're right. We have made tremendous progress over the last 20 years. And then COVID hit a year ago and it seemed like things really changed for us. For us in Indiana, we have made tremendous progress in reducing the domestic violence homicide rate, for example, here. We were getting to the point that we were only on average having somewhere between 30 and 50 domestic-related deaths on an annual basis because we had done such a great job in really identifying and preventing those homicides because we knew what the lethality factors and risks were. And we were being able to prevent, link with resources that would be able to prevent those homicides. And when we were having homicides, they were what we were considering outliers. These were outlier cases where they had never touched a system. They had never reached out to anybody for help. And so they were just individuals that we had no predictor that they may become a victim of a homicide. Now, since COVID hit, we have direct correlation between COVID, isolation, downturn in the economy, access to firearms, increase purchase of firearms, increase use of alcohol consumption, and then a skyrocketing number of domestic violence deaths. And this all correlates kind of with our lockdown to in our state. So we went from having this 30 to 50 to from March of last year to December, around 100 deaths. Oh my. So it was about 113% in. Increase in our homicide rate Mm. for that period of time. And traditionally, while we know domestic related homicides, two thirds of those women who are killed in domestic related are are killed by an intimate partner. And about 50% nationally are killed by a firearm. Here in Indiana, around those statistics, that was 74%. So 24% higher this time with Mm. a firearm. Now I'm going to be interested to see Mm. nationally. Mm -hmm. How does that play out? There was a recent study during this COVID time that said it was still slightly over 50%. So is Indiana an anomaly that we're 24% higher than the national average? So that's a little concerning. Other things that we saw as a result of this COVID time because of the lockdown is, we saw a significant decline in survivors being able to reach out to us for services. So there was a significant drop in the reach out for help to our programs and access for our services. But we saw a huge spike. We saw a significant spike in calls to 911. Mm. So in some communities during that time, it was up 87% in regions and in rural communities. So they were having the opportunity... At at a brief moment, that their only call was to 911 or a text to 911. In Marion County, it was 50%. In Stark County, it was 87%. Out in Crawfordsville, it was about 37% that they had this huge increase in 911 calls. So that was their only opportunity for a reach out. So decline in access to our services. Significant spike in 911 calls. And then the other things that our hospitals, ER and forensic programs reported to us is that the violence and the injuries were so much more severe during Mm. this time, which we're not surprised by because Yes. And domestic violence thrives on secrecy and privacy. And so when you're in lockdown, that violence can just become more intense. And when nobody sees you, it's able just to flourish. So all of this COVID and isolation and the stressors from the economic pressures just has really, just really has allowed it to intensify over this last year.
1: And I know you're Networking nationwide, you always have been. Are these similar trends? I mean, I know you talked about the firearms seems to be potentially an anomaly, maybe in Indiana, but in terms of just the fatality rates, domestic fatality with 113% increase in Indiana, is this a trend nationally that we're seeing this huge increase?
0: So as I talk with my colleagues around the country, they're all seeing an increase. Nobody's reporting an increase at the rate that we're seeing. Now, I don't know if the anomaly is that we've done such a good job in reducing our rate so significantly that this is such a jump for us, but they all are reporting an increase in the domestic homicide death rate during this COVID time. So the question is, at what rate yet? I think we're not going to even know that until we're out of this period of COVID. And we can do a real deep analysis of, of how many truly have died. We don't even have the numbers yet um, from those who have died by suicide. And that has really, really been a significant number this year. Yes, Serious mental crisis and death by suicide has been really up here in Indiana as well. And so we know many, many of those who die by suicide, especially female, and they're one of the highest numbers right now, are often escaping violence in their home. So we haven't even added those to our numbers yet, because we haven't had the ability to analyze that data yet.
2: How do we approach this, Mike and uh, Laura, in the sense of, Laura, what you said about as far as the anomaly in Indiana, it it makes you wonder, though, too, if there's if everything's really being reported yet in other states to the degree that it needs to be, but what is the pathway forward in the COVID-related times? We're all hoping with that this is starting to society's starting to open up, but how do you address this as we go forward?
1: I would jump in and say, you know, thank you. Things. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, I'm just going to say we. Would- One, we're trying to prep organizations that we work with because some of the solutions here, like where we're heading, talking about this federal legislation and then the need for state level, that takes time. Our doors are opening right now. And so we're talking a lot to our churches, our businesses. Back when I was in Nashville, we had seven members on an anti-stalking team and the majority of stalking ended up in the workplace. Why? Because she left and the only place I could find her was at work. And I feel like we're going to see a trend here where the risk is going to start bleeding back into the workplace as people are going back to work. But as we kind of segue into this loophole that we want to talk about, one of the things I noted that Laura mentioned was this access to weapons. There's 13 or 14 things yes. we've talked about for yes. years that when you see these in a domestic violence incident are a huge red flag or indicators. And I liken this to, I like cars, but not everybody needs to drive a car. Habitual drunk drivers get their ability to drive taken away. And so I think sometimes we get hung up on the political aspects of the gun debate when it's not the gun we're talking about, we're talking about the human being that's displayed violence. And we know if we remove that access, that's a Lottenberg amendment years ago, take away the access to the weapon, it reduces the likelihood of a fatality. So as we're kind of moving this direction, Laura, want to frame with us kind of what we're Mm -hmm. talking about when we say this protective order loophole or even just help our listeners understand what is a protective order to begin with?
0: Right. So I think there's a couple of things. So an order of protection, Is it is a civil order that individuals can seek to gain protection from harassment, further violence from an individual in Indiana, you can obtain an order of protection for domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking. And then now in Indiana, we have this new what's called a harassment order. And so that can be put in place by the courts that you can seek individually to protect yourself from further violence. And that's the goal of that order of protection. And it can in Indiana, you there's kind of two types of orders, we have what's called this ex parte order that you can ask for certain types of relief to to prevent further violence, harassment, intimidation, those types of things, and the court can rule on it on its face. Granted for two years um, against an individual, and then that order does not prevent an individual from possessing a firearm. So it's just an ex parte order that gives you certain relief from harassment, intimidation, further violence. But an individual can seek, in our state, firearm removal in conditions, if there's been threats of violence, but that does require due process, and then that's a second step. So you have to request that type of order of protection that requests specifically to have firearms removed because the person possesses a firearm. You're, you're fearful of that. And then there has to be due process of a hearing and that the court has to rule that removal of a firearm is necessary to prevent further violence. The court can rule against that. Courts in Indiana are reluctant to do so. They don't ever want to remove somebody's right to possess a firearm unless absolutely necessary. So now we are in Indiana, unlike many other states, we're really fortunate. We have, by virtue of statute over the years, we really have very intentionally created and expanded a definition of family and household member that includes dating and formerly dating relationships which right now on the federal level they're talking about creating there's this boyfriend loophole mm-hmm. that that is being proposed right now in HR 1491 so the boyfriend loophole basically has said under the federal guidelines that most states have and the federal government has defined what a relationship is and it's usually spouse former spouse Living as if a spouse are married or you have a child in common. And it has left out this huge segment of the population of those of us who have dated or been in a dating relationship. And then it becomes violent after you break up. And that's Mm -hmm. a significant statistical population. Yes, You know, when we look at our stats of of relationships that have broken up, that can be upward to 50% of the the relationships that we see that have turned violent or even have resulted in homicide, those relationships that have ended, that have turned violent. And that's a big loophole for people who, who don't get their firearms removed. And so if it's not taken care of on the state level to include those individuals, in your statute, it needs to at least be addressed on, on the federal level because when we think about spouse, former spouse living as if a spouse or a child in common, that's not everybody, and that burden of proof by prosecutors, the state, or the petitioner in an order of protection to to prove that you are living as if a spouse becomes burdensome, mm. and where it became really problematic in many states, including Indiana prior to the Supreme court ruling is if you were in a same sex relationship, because same sex relationship wasn't recognized as if you were ever a married couple. So closing that loophole for many is really critical and it moves and it goes on to moving. What's the critical part that we talk about is firearm removal in misdemeanor criminal cases, and in some jurisdictions, protective order cases. So, what happens is it's one of the few crimes and or cases in misdemeanors where it prevents an individual from purchasing a firearm, possessing a firearm or ammunition down the road. And that's that was my
2: question for those mm-hmm. that really don't know what the laws are is, yeah, when does that come into play? If, if someone has been has documented domestic violence incidents mm-hmm. against their partner, is that enough for a gun to be removed?
0: Well, so it could be in an order of protection. So if you're seeking an order of protection and you have documented violence and you can show instances of violence and maybe even threats with violence, and you're seeking an order of protection, the courts, especially here in Indiana, can remove, if you're asking for a hearing and due process is provided, they can remove that firearm to further prevent future violence. We also are fortunate enough here in Indiana, and Mike might remember this in his training time, we also have a statue here in Indiana where law enforcement, if they respond to a scene, a domestic violence scene, can actually, they can take any effort to prevent further acts of violence or prevent further acts of violence, and they can confiscate firearms from the from a scene so that there's no further instance of, of future violence. So they could at the time remove firearms from a household when they respond. So we have a couple of mechanisms for doing that. Problems we have is, while we may have some of these things in place, In your example, the court could do the further issuance of preventing further violence by removing a firearm. In in those cases, our problem is the mechanism for getting those firearms. Mm -hmm. How do we get them? How do we make certain that a respondent in an order of protection who is now barred from possessing a firearm, that they get turned in? Mm -hmm. What would happen previously is... John, the respondent, would give it to his dad for holding and safekeeping. That really doesn't prevent John from giving access to his firearm if he wants it, because dad's not going to tell him no, that he can't have it. We just don't have a good mechanism for storing and safekeeping in these types of firearm situations, because of, and rightfully so, law enforcement and sheriff's departments are Liability, storage space, how do we make certain they get returned to these individuals safely? So mm. it, yeah, it's the whole mechanism. It's a bigger mechanism. Yeah, it's a, whole, it's a whole big problem.
2: It's interesting, Laura, too, because Mike and I have talked about this in church outreach and in some of the training that we're, we're currently doing. And I've worked with a lot of churches, and I, I mean, I've known personally a couple. Uh, pastors that have said when they've had members in their congregation, they were concerned about and were called and went into the home to counsel mm-hmm. on domestic violence, that they themselves have removed the guns from the home of yeah. uh, these pastors and locked them up right. in their church or, lo- you know. It made me curious of if even they could do that, would they get in trouble for doing that? I mean, a lot of them just said, that's what we're doing, which I thought was sure. great that they had the knowledge to do so, yeah. but, but it just seems like there's so many mechanisms
0: there's been these wonderful projects that have been funded, and Indiana has a couple of them going on, that there's these firearms surrender projects that are going on, working collaboratively with the courts and law enforcement to do these firearms surrender projects, that when courts are ordering these types of surrender, that law enforcement are working to gather these firearms and store them safely to see if there is a reduction in further violence and potential homicide. So there are some initiatives going on. I love this community accountability that you're talking about mm-hmm. where faith leaders and clergy and others are coming to say voluntarily let us lock up these guns for you just so that you keep your family family mm-hmm. safe. I mean, mm-hmm. what a great way to hold that individual accountable to the safety of their family because We've heard from survivors across the scope that say, I want my community to be accountable to this individual and I want them to be accountable to their community. That usually reduces violence better. Mm -hmm. And so that could be a really powerful, a powerful way if we as a system can't get the guns, then the community and other people can help protect that family, Mm -hmm. maybe even better. Because then that individual may, may understand that that this protects them. Because we know victims are six times more likely to be killed. It's because when a gun's available, the impulse is greater to have that homicide right. happen because, because the gun's there than when it's not. Right. It's an easier method. It's easier. Right.
1: Well, way to go, Laura. You just kind of laid the foundation as we're wrapping up for a future conversation. Mm-hmm. Because we are literally rolling out training to church ministry and youth serving organizations across the country right now. And phase one is really more helping volunteers understand red flags and grooming, community grooming, and really trying to reduce the amount of sexual exploitation of our children. But the future mm-hmm. trainings, we want to mm-hmm. bring in the discussion for a 360 approach to healthy communities and church, domestic violence. And I think this might be a great topic for our yes. staff and leaders of our church in ministry to really understand here are some things you can do to proactively prevent and help and much faster potentially than having to work Mm -hmm. through congress which is (laughs) i don't even want to go there Uh, but (laughs) how do you you know engage our faith community so i think that would be a great topic to bring back
2: And I liked it with Laura, too, what you said. And I know, Mike, you did this in Nashville. It's it's a community accountability. Because most often, even though there's isolation, a lot of times they are members of a church. Mm -hmm. Maybe they don't go all the time, but they're known or they're known in their community. and, And sometimes that's kind of the shock because they could be very well known in the community, and nobody has an idea of what's going on behind the scenes. And so making that acu- community accountability, to me, is, is really an interesting element to, to what you're doing on the front lines, for a better lack of words.
0: And we find community accountability is so much more successful, not only for the survivor, but the the person who causes harm. And it's restorative in nature.
2: It's a lot to take in. And of course, our hearts just go out. When I heard those numbers, it was hard not to get teary because honestly, just to think of these lives and just your heart goes out to the women and children that, that live under this. And as you said, yeah, even on on the abuser side, trying to find a way of reform for them, but after the fact, of course. So, but to hear those numbers is, is really something and just makes us aware of coming out of COVID and the work that has to be done, right? Continuing on. I agree. Well, Laura, thank you so much for being here and joining us in the conversation the work you do is just it's incredible and we want you back on to thanks to, for having me i be happy about to come it. back oh absolutely i mean i really think you and even you know what mike did and started in nashville in the model it's, it is the unsung heroes uh, people that aren't heard necessarily about on a day-to-day basis that are saving lives and that have the compassion and heart to want to rescue and help those in need so thank you so much for being here thank you This podcast is sponsored by Safe Hiring Solutions, a nationwide company that offers comprehensive, industry-leading, real-time security solutions for companies, schools, churches, and nonprofit organizations.